Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians, and we'll be looking at a few verses in chapter one, but our message today is from chapter four. So if you'll turn to chapter one of Philippians, if you need a Bible, these brothers have some, they're going to make their way to the back in the aisles. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. That's marked for you at the book of Philippians. So I want you to think for a moment about what it is you like about your church. What is it you like about CBC? Now, I'm assuming since you're here today and most of you are on most Sundays, then there is something you like about it unless somebody drags you here against your will. So just think to yourself, how is it that you would describe why you come to this church and if you're a member, why you joined? I know that many, many of the answers to that question would be the people, the relationships, all the families with kids the same age as mine, a number of programs and events and so on. So many would say that their reason for being a part of CBC is that we're, we're together. And that word is actually found in the title of our series that we've been going through in Philippians, Together for the Gospel. Others would say they like CBC because they're taught the Bible and they're able to grow spiritually. But hear this, we are together and we are growing for something. Our relationships and even our growth are not ends in themselves, but rather they are means to the end. And that's why the full title then of the series is not just together, but together for something, together for the gospel. Now, today we come to the concluding paragraph of the book of Philippians. That's a study that we began in October of last year. And I entitled the series Together for the Gospel because that's the theme of these four chapters taken from the open verses found in chapter one. That's why I've asked you to start in chapter one to remind you in verse three. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But what does it mean to be partners in the gospel or to be together for the gospel? Well, it means that we're involved in the same work that Paul, who wrote this letter and the Christians in the city of Philippi to whom he wrote it were involved. We're involved in that very same work. And what was that work? Well, in his insightful book, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally, David Hesselgrave has defined the biblical mission, I think, very accurately this way. He says, the mission of the church and therefore of the church is. Now, you see that on the screen? The mission of the church, capital C. And therefore, the mission of the church is, plural, that comprise the church, capital C. The mission of the church and therefore of the churches is to proclaim the gospel of Christ and gather believers into local churches where they can be built up in the faith and made effective in service, thereby planting new congregations throughout the world. You see, friends, our relationships are for a larger purpose. Our spiritual growth is for a larger purpose, and that is to see the advance of the mission that Jesus gave us 
in the form of new Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches being established. Now, in order for that to happen, then, we have to partner. We have to partner in various ways, using our gifts and abilities to strengthen the church here so that out of the overflow of the health that God gives us, then we're able to see that spill out into the advance of his mission, both in our community and then beyond. And that objective of the biblical mission has a still larger purpose. If you'll turn to chapter 4. The biblical mission, as with all things, has a still larger purpose. In fact, if you'll notice verse 20 of chapter 4. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So why do you like CBC? Why did you join? Relationships are indeed good and important. Events and activities are good and important. Learning the Bible is good and important. But none of these are the ultimate reason we're together. We're together to bring glory to God. And we do that together as we advance his mission throughout the world. And our relationships and our activities and our growth are all means to that end. The believers in Philippi were committed to the advance of the biblical mission, and so they serve as an example for us. So I invite you to follow along with the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out yet, we're going to be looking at four things from Philippians chapter 4 that I have listed for you on that outline. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Father, thank you for gathering us. You are the one who has gathered us because you're the one who has given us the ability to be here, the health to be here, the circumstances that allow us to be here, the freedom to be here. But Lord, you're the one who has given us the desire to be here. It's you who have given us your Holy Spirit who works in our hearts for us to desire what is best and to learn what is still uh, more to be added to our commitment and our love for you. And so, Lord, we've gathered as your people. Our hearts are stilled, our minds attentive upon your word. So we ask you, Lord, to teach us as only you can. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, on that outline, the first thing I say from Philippians 4 is this, that Christians choose what is best. Christians choose what is best. As we partner together, as we're together for the advance of God's mission, It means, among other things, that we choose what is best. And I say that from verse 14, which says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Paul says to the Philippians, it was good of you to share. And when he says you shared in my troubles, he's speaking specifically of them sharing in his ministry by their financial support. Verse 18 of chapter 4 says, I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So in this context, he's talking about what they shared with him of their finances to help him in the distress that I'll remind you of that he's currently that he's currently in. Now, the word translated share in verse 14 is the same Greek word found passage that we just looked at in chapter one, where it speaks of the Philippian believers and Paul's partnership in the gospel. 
So you've got the word share here in chapter 4 and verse 14. Back in chapter 1 and verse 5, you have this word partnership, and they are both translations, share and partnership, of the same Greek word, koinonia, sometimes translated fellowship. And then just two verses after that, in chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, you share in God's grace with me. So there in chapter 1 and verse 5, Chapter 1 and verse 7, and now here in chapter 4 and verse 14, this same idea of what we have in common being brought together for our common purpose. Paul viewed the Philippians' generosity as evidence of their partnership or their fellowship with him in the ministry. And Paul wanted them and us to understand that giving to support the biblical mission was actually taking up fellowship as partners in his present trouble of being under house arrest in Rome. If you've been with us for parts of this series, you know that's that, that is the circumstance in which Paul finds himself. In Rome, under house arrest. And though they, the Philippians, were not in prison with him, they participated in his troubles by their sympathy and by their financial sacrifice. We saw last week that Paul needed these finances, even though he was under house arrest, because prisoners in the Roman system We're dependent upon outside support for everything. Now, you've already heard it hinted at that this message is about, in large part, money, giving. So I'm issuing a warning that the passage talks about participating in the mission by giving. But stay with me as it's not intended to be a guilt session. It's simply what the Word of God says in this particular passage. But a willingness to give to the mission and ministry of others is established in Scripture as an indicator of spiritual health. Do you hear that? A willingness to do that is an indicator in the Bible of our spiritual health. Conversely, an unwillingness to do that is an indicator of our lack of spiritual health. Now, why is that? Well, consider the case of Zacchaeus. You remember the case of Zacchaeus, a a tax collector? And after he came to Jesus... He demonstrated immediately a generosity from a guy who previously had been a very greedy person. His generosity was a sign of his regenerate, his changed, his spiritually alive heart. The Bible says, Zacchaeus said to the Lord, we have it for you on the screen. Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now notice, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The evidence that this guy now belongs to me is what he just said. Is the repentance of his heart with regard to his possessions. He was not saved because of his giving. But rather he was giving because he was now saved. Because he had been changed. John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 was preaching to crowds of people who'd gathered to hear him and to be baptized. Three different groups of people ask him what they should do to show the fruit of repentance. And John gives three answers. He says, everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. He says, tax collectors shouldn't pocket extra money. And he says, soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money. Now notice there, they asked John the Baptist, what do we do to show that we're truly repentant? 
And each answer relates to money and possessions. (laughs) But nobody asked him about that. They asked him what they should do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation. So why didn't John talk about other things? Well, here's why. For God, hear this, faith and finances are inseparable. It's such a high priority to God that John the Baptist couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how to handle money and possessions. Jesus knew that money and possessions were the rich young ruler's God. Remember that story of the rich young ruler? Comes to Jesus and says, good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you've heard of the commandments. Then keep those. And the young man in his arrogance said, from my youth I've done that, all the way up. But Jesus knew what his God really was. And by the way, one of those commandments is you will have no other gods before me. So Jesus says, sell what you have. Remember? Give to the poor. And the Bible says that that man went away sorrowful because he was gripped by his money. He considered the price too great. And so he walked away from real treasure. So one reason that this issue of finances is highlighted by Paul in his gratitude to the the Philippians is because their generosity with what God has entrusted to them is an indicator of God's work in them, an indicator of God's work in them. But secondly, giving to mission and ministry is a substantive evidence of participation in the fellowship of the gospel. In fact, one author just says it this way. I'm going to use his words so you don't blame me. He says, if we're not giving to gospel ministry, then we have no part in it. Now, let me just remind you, I don't know who gives at our church. You guys know that? I don't know. I never see who gives at our church. So I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to us, right? But Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we do with our resources is a window into our souls. And the question for each of us is, what does God see when he looks in there? The Philippians had nothing to fear because the opening line of verse 14 has Paul commending them. Commending them in excellent Greek, which is the original language that your New Testament was written in, but it's ungrammatical English. He says, in effect, in verse 14, you done good. You did good. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says to really get a feel for what's being said, we need to understand that it's more than just you did a kind thing. It was good of you. Some translations say it was good of you to do this. And we might say that to someone. It was good of you to send me that card. It was good of you to show up at the hospital, that kind of thing. It was just a kind thing for you to do. But no, it means more than that. The word means good Beautiful, pleasant, noble, splendid. That's why I say the point of verse 14 is that Christians choose what is best. What's noble, what's splendid, what's good and beautiful. Their partnering with Paul had his approval. He says you did a good thing, a noble thing, a splendid thing. But more importantly, it had God's approval and therefore it was that good beautiful and noble thing to do they were spending on what is best so friends christians choose what is best and i say in your outline they do so 
continually. Verse 15. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Now, the words used in these verses and those that follow are from the world of commerce, of banking, of finance. So when you read this phrase, the matter of giving and receiving, it can sound to our ears very cold and just bottom line. It's only about money. But in their culture, those terms indicated friendship. And here, a warm and lasting friendship that recalls the mutual exchange of services and affliction which they had shared together in the past, the Philippians and Paul, through their partnership in the gospel from the very first day that he speaks of in chapter 1. New Testament scholar Peter O'Brien says, in the light of contemporary usage at the time Paul wrote this, the entire phrase, you shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, it's an expression indicating friendship. Paul is drawing upon familiar notions of friendship to acknowledge the recent gift and to express his gratitude. The language reflects a warm and lasting relationship. He not only receives the gift gladly as a sign of their continuing concern, but he also recalls the mutual exchange of services and affection which they had shared in the past. So giving and receiving are terms of deepest affection and friendship. But yes, it includes showing that affection and friendship and partnership monetarily. When Paul left the city of Philippi 10 years before writing this, and he traveled the 95 miles to the next city, next large city, Thessalonica. At that time, the financially struggling Philippians repeatedly sent representatives to Thessalonica with gifts to meet his needs. That's what he's referring to in verses 15 and 16. And then when Paul left Macedonia, where both Philippi and Thessalonica, those cities were located, They remained the only church to continue supporting him. Even when Paul went to the wealthy city of Corinth, and he wrote two letters, you know, to Corinth, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But from the proud people in Corinth, he refused to receive any support from them. When he was in Corinth, it was the Philippians of Macedonia who helped him. And Paul said as much in 2 Corinthians. He said, when I was with you, we have it on the screen. When I was with you, Corinthians, and I needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. I was not a burden to any of you. Why? Because the brothers who came from Macedonia, Philippi, supplied what I needed. So they do so. Christians who choose what is best, they do that. Choosing what is best continually. And they do so, I say in your outline, sacrificially. Sacrificially. You see, friends, it's easy for us to get the idea that for a church of our size to be supported for the ministry that's carried on, that there must be some fat cats in the church who get that done. Now, again, I don't know who gives. So if you're a fat cat, great. I don't know about it. But I don't think we really have any or many fat cats. It's just us. It's just regular folk like us. 
who have ordered their lives in a way to prioritize what is best. And the Philippians did so sacrificially. It wasn't there weren't fat cats. They, They didn't have plenty. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Speaking of the Macedonian churches and, and Philippi in particular, Paul said this in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and notice this and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So we've got to lose the idea that the ministry and the biblical mission is carried forward forward by just a relative few very wealthy people. It is us together doing this. So Christians choose what is best. I say secondly in your outline. That they invest in what is beneficial. Choose what is best and invest in what is beneficial. Now all of what Paul has said so far in verses 14 through 16 could be taken as him saying this in order for him to get still more. I mean, they've been very generous. They've given to him on a number of occasions. He's commending them. But some could take that as him manipulating in order to to get more. And therefore, he says in verse 17. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. That more be credited to your account. You see, Christians invest in what is beneficial and beneficial for three groups of people. The first is us, I say in your outline. It's beneficial. It is so for us. The words of verse 17 are again from the world of banking, but they have very important spiritual application. The word credited in verse 17 refers to continuing deposits into your account like interest accruing in your heavenly account. Now, we got to be careful with that. It sounds strange to us because it sounds like you give to get something, namely heaven. As we've already pointed out, no one gives in order to get into heaven, or maybe some do, but giving will never get you into heaven. It's only the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that gets us into, into heaven. But Jesus did teach that there are rewards in heaven. But even so... To give in order to get reward sounds strange to our ears, so it requires a bit of explanation. As I've already said, first of all, it's not that we give to gain heaven. Instead, people who have these generous hearts are so because they are already going to heaven. But it sounds suspect to us, a kind of spiritual quid pro quo, because when we we know that people do that all the time, they give in order to get Pastor Kent Hughes said this in that regard. He said, when people give to a political campaign in the hope that if their candidate is elected, they'll be remembered, then their generosity is questionable. Or when people give to a public service with the condition that their name be mentioned. So I watch, I'm one of about 10 people in the country who watch public television sometimes. And you know that part of that, about 10% comes from taxes and then People and corporations and foundations give. And sometimes when there's a program on, it'll say something like, this program is made possible by the generosity of the Ken and Kim Brown Foundation. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We don't have a foundation. But when that happens, the motivation may be to advertise themselves as rich people who have cultural substance. 
But most certainly, none of the Philippians were seeking to build either their reputation or their heavenly bank accounts by showy displays of generosity. Still, Paul's encouragement to generosity was given with an eye to compounding spiritual interest for the Philippians until the return of Christ. How can he say that? How can he use a word like credited, a, a banking term then? Well, he's got a foundation in words that Jesus spoke. In Matthew chapter 19, remember he told the rich young ruler, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And Jesus then in fact composed a proverb to help his followers remember this. In Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Randy Alcorn has written a very helpful little book on this topic titled The Treasure Principle. I believe we have copies of it in our resource center. And he explains what Jesus is teaching us. He says it this way. Storing up earthly treasure isn't just wrong. It's just plain stupid. Oh, not to put too fine a point on it. Now, why is that? Why, why does he say that? Well, it's not because these earthly treasures are bad. It's because they won't last. All earthly wealth will be lost. Not might be lost. All earthly wealth will be lost. Either it leaves us while we live. That is, it's destroyed or it's stolen. It leaves us while we live or we leave it when we die. But either way, it's going to be left. So imagine you were alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you're a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over. While in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? Well, if you're smart, there's only one answer. You should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that's going to have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate money to meet your short-term needs. What does that mean to you and me? As Christians, friends, we have inside knowledge of an eventual worldwide upheaval caused by Christ's return. This is the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die, whichever comes first. And either event could, by the way, happen at any time. Investment experts known as market timers read signs that check the mark when the market check when the market's about to take a downturn. And then they recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable vehicles such as money markets, treasury bills, certificates of deposit. And in Matthew chapter six, Jesus functions as the foremost market timer. He tells us to once and for all switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive. And move it to heaven, 
which is totally dependable and ensured by God himself and is coming soon to forever replace Earth's economy. Christ's financial forecast for Earth is bearish. It's bleak. But he has unreservedly bullish about investing in heaven where every market indicator is eternally positive. There's nothing wrong with Confederate money as long as you understand its limits. Realizing that its value is temporary should radically affect your investment strategy. To accumulate vast earthly treasures that you can't possibly hold on to for long is equivalent to stockpiling Confederate money even though you know it's about to become worthless. According to Jesus, storing up earthly treasure isn't simply wrong, it's just plain stupid. And he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For yourselves treasures in heaven. Doesn't it seem strange that Jesus commands us to do what's in our own best interest? Store this up for yourselves. Well, not really if you think about it. God expects us to act out of enlightened self-interest. Stay with me. He wants us to live for his glory. But what is to his glory is always to our good. Did you know that? So John Piper has famously said this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When I invest in what he cares about, that always accrues to my good. Selfishness is when we pursue gain at the expense of others. But God doesn't have a limited number of treasures that he distributes. When you store up treasures for yourself in heaven, it doesn't reduce the treasures available to others. In fact, it's by serving God and others that we store up heavenly treasures. So everyone gains and no one loses. Jesus here, then, in Matthew 6, is talking about deferred gratification. And he told the story in Matthew as well, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to see a verse in just a moment. But he told the story of a traveler traveling along. And in order to take a shortcut, he goes through a field. I'm expanding Jesus' story. You'll see his verse in a minute. And... In order to uh, take a shortcut, he goes through a field. And the owner allows this because it wasn't uncommon in those days for people to do that because of the way the road system was. So he takes a shortcut through this field. And he's got a cane to help him on the uneven roads and now through this field. And he's poking the staff into the ground as he takes each step. And then at some point he hits a thunk. And he wonders what that is, and he takes the staff, and he hits it again, and there's another thunk. And now he's curious enough to, to bend down. He doesn't have much time, but he's going to take the time to find out what it is. And he digs, and he finally finds the top of a box that has gold around the top. And he brings this box out, and he's able to get the old, decrepit lock uh, off. And he's able to open it up, and inside it, he finds pieces of gold and jewelry and valuables. And he can't believe his, his fortune. But he doesn't own this property. Whoever owns the property clearly doesn't know that this box is here. It wouldn't be right for him to steal it. But he wants that treasure. 
And so he buries it. But then he goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy that field and have that treasure. Now, Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Jesus is speaking of deferred gratification. The man who finds treasure in the field pays a high price now by giving up all he has, but soon he's going to gain fabulous treasure. As long as his eyes are on that treasure, he makes short-term sacrifices and he does so with joy. The joy is present, so the gratification isn't entirely deferred. He's joyful now because present joy often comes from anticipating future joy. And so this guy's willing to give all of that, all of that up. I hear this and remember the only money that we'll see again is that which is used for the Lord. The only money you'll see again is that which is used for the Lord. Now, he's not talking about primarily money in heaven here. Jesus is using that parable, that's what it is, a parable, a story. Hear this, about stuff that we do value in order to point us to the stuff that we should value. The stuff we do value is the treasure and the box. But Jesus is saying, just like the principle of what you do value, and you'd be willing to do anything and give up everything for that, you need to see heavenly treasure as of greater worth and be willing to give up everything for that. So Christians invest in what is beneficial. And it's beneficial for us, but I say in your outline. It's beneficial for others as well. Verse 18. I have received full payment, says Paul, and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. So this generosity, this demonstration of their spiritual life is such that it benefits them. It's eternal reward for them. But it also benefits others, like in this case, Paul. In his ministry, I've received full payment and I have more than enough, amply supplied. All of these banking terms, my account is overflowing. But it's because ultimately of God doing this, but God doing this through his people. It is so for others who benefit from our generosity. But then thirdly, in your outline, it is so, believe it or not, for God. Beneficial for us, beneficial for others who are the beneficiaries of our generosity. But then it's also beneficial for God. Now, how can something be beneficial for God? Well, verse 18, these offerings that you have given through Epaphroditus are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. That is, these are beneficial to God in the sense that When God sees his people most satisfied in him such that they're willing to give up lesser things for that which is greater. First of all, him and that which is important to him. When he sees that, it is pleasing to him. And that's what I mean by it benefiting God. We find this kind of language elsewhere in scripture. You remember in the book of Romans. 
For 11 chapters, Paul, who wrote it, lays out the the beauty, the majesty, the fullness of the good news of the gospel in Christ. And then after those 11 chapters of explanation, verses 12 through 16, for five chapters, he gives practical application. Now, here's what you're to do with that. And he starts those five chapters of practical application in Romans chapter 12, famously in verse 1, this way. On the screen, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. You see that? So we offer ourselves and we offer what God has given to us in ways that are designed to be pleasing to God. Second Corinthians chapter eight, something similar is said. It says the Philippian Macedonian Christians demonstrated rich generosity. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So in this giving, in this generosity, in prioritizing what God has given us, our treasure, our time, our talent for the Lord and what's important to the Lord. Yes, it benefits us. Yes, it benefits others, but it's also pleasing to God and it is first an act of worship to God. So Christians choose what is best. They invest in what's beneficial. And I say in your outline, they receive what is needed. Verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now that word and connects verse 19 with what precedes. So this promise of supply, now hear this, is for generous people like the Philippians. It can't be claimed by people who live for themselves. Joel Osteen gets no claim on this. The prosperity preachers get no claim on this. The context of this is all about people who prioritize God and what matters to God. And when you do that, my God will supply all your needs. This is one of those verses that so many of us quote out of its context. We saw one last week as well. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So that means I can fly if I put my mind to it. I mean, you can do everything. You can do everything that he talks about in that context. You can be content in any and every situation. Because your heart has been redirected toward God. So verse 19 can be translated, my God will meet every need of yours. It's intensely personal of yours and my God. This God was personally Paul's God and yours and mine. If we have a relationship with him through Christ Jesus, he is ours and we are his and he knows every need of ours and he'll meet our Needs as we value what he does and give as he gave of ourselves and of our possessions. God, who had repeatedly displayed his power in every conceivable circumstance, would supply the Philippians needs just as he had done for Paul through them. And in addition, Paul promised that God would meet not their greed, but their need, not all that they thought they needed, but all they truly needed. And every need includes the breathtaking range of everything that's vital to living our lives 
for Christ, God will supply all of those. So looking to the immediate context, this meant for the Philippians that God would meet any material need created by their great generosity for Paul. God will make up for any lack. In addition, in regard to the spiritual concerns laid out in this letter that Paul's given in these four chapters, God would supply the need for joy and for steadfastness and for endurance and humility and for unity and for for the ability to face all circumstances. And the stunning scope of the promise is that there is not one thing that they and all faithful Christians truly needed that God would not give. Not one thing. And on the basis of this, we can proclaim to every generous believer that God will meet every need he or she has. But to the grudging, there is no such promise. And as I've said, the wholesale application of this great promise does not exist It's for the generous follower of Christ alone. Now, how does God do this? How does God meet these needs? Well, the answer is equally as expansive as the promise. The promise is that he'll meet every need of yours. But how's he going to do that? According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. As Gordon Fee explains, the Philippians' generosity toward Paul expressed lavishly at the beginning of verse 18 is exceeded beyond all imagination by the lavish wealth of the eternal God who dwells in glory, full of riches, made available in Christ Jesus. God's riches are inherent in who he is as the creator and the God of the universe. So his riches include and infinitely exceed the aggregate wealth of the universe. God's incalculable wealth together with his wonderful splendor of his glory form the treasury and the dazzling context from which he lavishes his children according to his riches. Notice that phrase, according to his riches. If I had a million dollars and I gave you a hundred dollars, I'd be giving to you out of my riches. But if I gave you a blank check, I'd be giving you according to my riches. But God does far more because his riches are infinite and they can't be diminished by the endless zeros on the celestial blank check. The fact that his riches are in glory sets up the ultimate location of these in Christ Jesus, which describes in whom and how the riches that come from God's glory are given to us. They're in Jesus. They're for those who are in Jesus. They are for those who are pursuing what matters to Jesus. And so it is his people. Paul began this letter by addressing it to all the saints in Christ Jesus. And now he's concluding it in verse 19 to those in Christ Jesus. For Christians, every need is met in Christ. He's our beginning and our end. All things come to us in him and through him. Now, friends, that should give us great assurance if we belong to Christ. And if we're sharing in the fellowship of the gospel through care and generosity, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Christians choose what is best. They invest in what's beneficial. They receive what's needed. And lastly and quickly, they achieve what is greatest. It could have been highest, whatever superlative you can put in that that blank. That's what it could be. They achieved that. Now, why do I see that? Because having reached 
this height now of exaltation of Christ and our lives to be given to him and poured out through him and for him. Having now reached the height of exaltation, Paul could do nothing but just end it by bursting into praise for God. Doxology. Verse 20 has that. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now only a line earlier... He had used the intensely personal, my God. In verse 19, my God will supply all your need. And he did that to assure the Philippians and us of God's care. But now he's using the plural, our God. And he united himself with the Philippians and with us in ascribing glory to God forever and ever in all ages to come. And remember, friends, all of this came because of the Philippian church's generosity to the Apostle Paul. Praise to God is the proper response when God's people are generous because only God can make us that way. And so a hymn said this, We give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. A trust, O Lord, from thee. Your take-home truth is this then. Christians... Live for what really matters. Christians live for what really matters. Now we're going to bow and pray. And as we conclude in prayer, it's a time for each of us to align our hearts with the heart of God. We've seen in God's word a model church and model Christians and how they had prioritized what God and what matters to him. Let's ask God to Help us to do that, each of us. For those of you who do not know Jesus Christ, now, this moment, in this sacred moment, you can come to him. And you can come to him by realizing that you're a sinner. We have it on the screen for you. Recognize that Christ died for your sins. And you repent. You repent of your sins. Repent means I'm going to go your way, God, not my way. I'm no longer going to live for my stuff and live for myself. I'm going to live for you. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that by praying when we bow in just a moment. In your own words from your heart to God. Lord, I believe I'm a sinner. I've been shown my sin today. I've been shown how the things of the world have a grip on my heart. I believe that only Jesus can cleanse my sin and give me a relationship with you. I ask you to save me and change me. I give my life to you. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for the blessing of this Lord's day and the privilege of having your word in our hands to be able to look in it and there to see your character and how you in your grace, have changed others to reflect that character. We thank you for showing us the great Apostle Paul. We thank you for showing us the hearts of his partners in the gospel, the Philippian believers. And now, Lord, you have given that mission which Paul helped begin, the Philippian to which the Philippians contributed. You've given that mission to the generation since, including us. You've given the biblical mission. And you've said that you will be with us always until the very end of the age. So, Lord, until the end of the age, help us to be people who look for the age to come. Help us to be people who live in this time as people who are living, looking beyond time and to eternity. 
Help us, Lord, to align our hearts and align our lives and our actions. All of them, our time, our talent, and our treasure for what matters to you and brings glory to you. Lord, I ask you to do what only you can do in this sacred moment and draw some to yourself who have seen the grip that the things of this world have upon them and need to be saved and released and freed from the power of that by the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask you to do that, and we will give you the praise for all you accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen.